It was as I was prepping for today's message, um, I thought back to my first Christmas. Uh, that was would be 1982. Uh, what had happened in October before that first Christmas? I was a stereotypically very wild pagan middle linebacker for the East Carolina Pirates and uh, came to Christ in a dorm there in the East Carolina University. And so as I hit my first Christmas, it was a lot of emotions and memories that I sort of reflected back on uh, as I prepped this week. And it was certainly as if the spiritual lights had come on in some ways, meaning I had experienced 19 Christmases, right? In a worldly sense, we had good presents and food, and nothing wrong with those. But even though we went to church every Sunday, no Christmas Eve service, no reading the scriptures, no living out of Christ, and a lot of drunkenness in my home. My dad was an alcoholic. And so uh, in all my great maturity of two and a half months in Christ, I got excited and I thought, since I can see differently, like there was, like, I see now what Christmas is supposed to be. I thought my parents, they just don't know. So I had this grand idea. Went home, said, Mom and Dad, I need to talk to you, Christmas break. I said, let's do this this year. After we open our one present, you know, the pajama present on Christmas Eve you open, let's read the Christmas story, pray as a family, and I want to make Jesus a birthday cake. I have no idea where I got that idea of making Jesus a birthday cake, right? But somehow I thought that. And they looked at me like I had three eyeballs in my, on my forehead, and mama was like, you ain't got time to make no cake for no person. They ain't even here to eat it. And uh, so I just gave in. No, you know better than that. I'm hard-headed. I was hard-headed then, and I'm hard-headed now. And uh, so I, I went down to the IGA store that we actually owned at the time and picked me up a box of Duncan Hines cake make, uh, mix, made a uh, cake for Jesus, uh, spread white icing on it and took a knife. I didn't know how to squeeze it and just sort of painted HBD Jesus on it, right? And uh, I remember my mama walking in the kitchen sort of rolling her eyes and huffing like, you goober. Later that night, since they didn't want to participate, I remember very distinctly pulling away to my room and opening the Bible to Luke 2. And as I read the Christmas story all along, I remember very significantly reading verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. And I remember thinking something like, my parents have no room for Christ in this house. And then I remember, it was one of the first prayers I remember praying. It was certainly naive. It was innocent as a dove. It was genuine. And most of all, it was dangerous. And I didn't know it was dangerous. And I said, Lord, would you help me to always have room for you? And it's dangerous in the sense that I was about to engage. Now over 40 years of pursuing Christ, I was so unaware and when you make room for Christ to be king, there's a lot of things that must die <laughs> in you. And so that's where I started my first Christmas. But to be honest, as much as I love Christmas, as much as 
those memories and emotions even welled up this week, uh, 40 plus years of being a Christ follower, uh, it's difficult to keep that kind of mindset, to remember how glorious it is that God became man so that men and women could become sons and daughters of God, to keep that a priority. One writer put it this way. He said, the greatest threat to Christmas is not secularism or consumerism, but our own boredom with the most thrilling true story ever told. The truth of the matter is, if you and I are Christ followers, Christmas is not just a day on the calendar, right? It's a lifestyle. It's a, it's a God with us every day and us learning how to walk with him, trust him, pursue him, and, uh, and do that consistently and faithfully. Now, we've been trying to help us as a whole church remember this over the last three weeks. Uh, we've done an Advent series. And a reminder, Advent is, is celebrating, remembering the first coming of Christ while looking forward and waiting well and faithfully to his second coming. And we've done that series out of Revelation uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And in that, uh, the Apostle John, he wrote to those seven churches. Christ gave him a vision. He wrote it down, seven letters, seven churches. And in that, those churches and us, we've learned over the last three weeks, we're given three gifts. Remember, the first gift was really the gift of encouragement. Uh, he was writing to those churches, and I think to us, and saying, keep doing what you're doing Faithfulness matters. This is the how you live. This is what you live for. A long obedience in the same direction. Keep what you're doing. We all need encouragement as followers of Christ. The second gift we received was the second week, which it doesn't feel like a gift, but oh, it's so needed, and it is. Uh, some people call it a strange gift, right? A strange minister, and that's the gift of correction that the Lord Jesus loves his people so much, he refuses to let them drift. He refuses to let them get far away. And when that happens, when there's little evidence or no evidence that we are making room for him in our lives, he corrects us. The writer of Hebrews says he disciplines those in whom he loves. Then the third gift. So we have the gift of encouragement, the gift of correction, and the third gift that we looked at was the gift of hope and assurance. And I love that because when the Bible speaks of hope, it speaks with this clarity and certainty that God will reward those who seek him. To those who look at this world and the horizontal, trivial things of this world and say, I can enjoy them unto the Lord Jesus, but I have turned my mind and heart and eyes heavenly to live for those things that are eternal, for the kingdom of God. God says, I want to, I want to give you great certainty. I will reward those who live for me. So over the course of those three weeks, every week, and we're going to do it today, we've exhorted believers to wait well, wait faithfully, even when waiting is hard. And I thought this morning, obviously, it's not a hard take. The best way to think about the second coming of Christ is to go back and look at his first coming, which I'll call the fourth gift, 
which is the gift of himself via the incarnation. Because if that fourth gift doesn't happen, there is no gift one and two and three. And speaking of the Son of God, the first time that we hear of God sending his Son, 100% God and 100% man, is in Genesis 3.15. How about that? Listen to this passage. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So you remember the story. At the very beginning of time, Satan comes into the garden. He deceives Adam and Eve with this deadly phrase, did God really say? And at the heart of every one of us when we sin, it is this question that we asked uh, in our minds and hearts or behind the scenes in our unconscious. Did God really say? Fill in the blank. Adam and Eve, they bought the lie. They rebelled against God. But very quickly, God follows that up. And I'll paraphrase. He says, sometime in the future, the seed of the woman that would be the Messiah placed there by the Holy Spirit will crush the serpent's head. So this morning for us, I wanted to, as we look at the birth of Christ, I wanted to stay in the book of Revelation. And thankfully, I found a passage that I think fits for where we've been and where we need to go. It is Revelation 12, 1 through 5. In this passage, it looks at the birth of Christ, if you would, from a perspective of a divine war or a divine drama. It is pitting, if you would, the eternal God against the much inferior but prideful and wicked arch enemy of God, Satan himself. And this war has always raised, all the way back from Genesis, when Adam and Eve bought the lie, all the way to today, right now, and will rage until Christ comes again. So listen to this passage, Revelation 12, 1 through 5. And a great sign appeared in heaven. It was a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, <coughs> excuse me, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This woman was pregnant and she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up with God into his throne. So as I read that, this divine drama, this divine war has three characters. The first one, you probably heard it, I emphasized it in the reading, is the what? The woman. Here, the woman metaphorically stands for Israel. 
And we know that Israel is often called the wife of God in the Old Testament, and we know it's from the Old Testament prophets where they prophesy over 300 times over several thousand years that the Lord Jesus would come and would be born and Christ fulfilled every single one of those prophecies. Prophecies like that come from the very famous book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, 700 years before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Then verse 2 tells us more about this woman or Israel. It says she is with child. She is pregnant. And in lots of passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 26, 54, chapter 66, or Micah, or Hosea, Israel is often described as a woman with child, a woman who is pregnant and who is in the pains of giving birth, who is in the pains of labor. And what we know is that for 4,000 years, Israel, the woman, she waited, went through a lot of terrible pain in order waiting for the Messiah to come. And it was so crucial. The Messiah, yes, was coming from Israel and for Israel, but it was also coming for something. The baby was coming for something much bigger. And the text tells us in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So not only was this woman birthing a Messiah for Israel, but she was birthing a child for the entire world. It is through this woman, Israel, that all the promises of God, starting all the way back, Genesis 3, all the way back up to today, came true in Christ until his first coming. Listen to how Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in who? In Christ. So we have uh, uh, a woman. Secondly, we have a dragon. Verse 3, the second person in John's vision uh, from Christ is a dragon. And here's what we know about him. This is Satan. In Revelation 5, 9, we see this dragon clearly described It says this, and the great dragon was thrown down. He is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And then in Revelation 17, we get a little explanation of those seven heads that were described in the text I read this morning. Many interpret those as world powers. So this dragon, if you would, or Satan is the god of this world. He is the prince and power of air. He is, yes, under the sovereign control of God, but this world is his temporary playground for his chaos. And then verse 4 continues to tell us more about this dragon or Satan. It says he's not alone. It tells us that when he was in heaven, he was not alone, and we swiped his tail. One-third of the angels were were, that also rebelled with, with him, were kicked out of heaven, and they are now his demons. And then verse 4 tells us the purpose, both of the dragon and his demonic helpers. Listen to the end part of verse 4. It 
so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. If you know a tad of history, you know that Satan has done everything under his possible control to destroy both the nation of Israel and the Messiah. Just a quick glance, and we could give 30 of these. Saul, remember, tried to murder David. David was the royal lineage in which the Messiah would come through, and he failed. And we have uh, Haman, who was the advisor to the Persian king in the book of Esther. He was the first one to attempt genocide on the nation of Israel or the Jews. And under the sovereignty of God, God had allowed the king to marry a Jew, an Israelite. And so they did not uh, massacre the Jews. Matter of fact, Haman lost his life. He was killed because he tried to take them out. And then Matthew 2, we read, we read that Satan tried to also kill this child when it was born. Uh, Herod commanded all males under two years old be killed and destroyed. And then Satan finally killed this child who had become a man on a cross, but he rose from the dead. So we have the woman, we have the dragon, and for our purposes this morning, as we hit our climax here, is the child, verse 5. Look what it says about this child. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule. All the nations were the rod of iron, but her child was called up to God and to his throne. This is what we call the incarnation. And his ruling is what we call the coronation because it is his kingdom will not be stopped and he will rule it. And when he rules it, when he comes back a second time, it's going to look completely different than his first coming. His first coming was in a manger. He was a baby and it was grace-filled. His second coming will be for justice. Listen to how Revelation 19 describes his second coming. John says, Then I saw heaven open up, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, and it is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Up until his second coming, verse 5 tells us he is caught up to the throne of God. The scriptures tell us that. It says that Christ is sitting now at the right hand of the Father. He is sitting on the edge of his throne, looking at the Father, and waiting for the words, now's the time. Only the Father knows the time, but he is ready. And when he returns, he will look like Revelation 19 described. While we wait, he has sent us his spirit so that you and I may wait well. So how does this divine war end? How does this divine drama end? 
Revelation 11.15 tells us, it's actually a verse that Handel, the great musician, put into his hallelujah chorus. It says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. This is how the divine war ends. God wins. It is Christ that has secured the victory. He is the child that was born to conquer for his people. The birth of Christ, one writer says, means God provides what he requires. Perfect righteousness. That's what happens when a person places their trust in Christ. At that very moment, that very moment, it takes the righteousness of Christ and places to our account, and it takes the, our sinfulness, past, present, and future, and places on Christ's account. And so now I have the righteousness of Christ. Christ has absorbed my sin and paid the penalty for it. And in that, he places his spirit within me and says, now chase me for the rest of your life faithfully. And amazing is that forgiveness is final. God doesn't keep score. He doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't get tired of his often failing people. He wants us to chase after him. Because of that, what do we do? We patiently wait well while we work in his kingdom for his agenda and why he works in and through us. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a martyr for the Christian faith, here's what he said. Our whole life is to be an advent as we wait for the last advent, a new heaven and a new earth. Waiting well means to renounce the ways of the world. What in the world does that mean? One writer described worldliness that could be defined as whatever makes sin looks normal, and righteousness, righteousness looks strange. If that doesn't fit our world today that says do as you please, when you want, how you want, where you want. So as we wait well, as a church and as individuals, I love the words of D.A. Carson. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived and knew that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, and so he sent us a savior. And I love how he ends it. He says, he sent us a great savior. Amen. There's been countless occasions in our world, in our history, where we have seen and witnessed a baby become a king. But there's only been one time in the history of the world where a king had become a baby. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand with me 
as we continue to worship and adore him. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. We are so grateful for your gifts to us. The gift of encouragement, Lord, we need it. The gift of correction, yes, Lord, we are prone to wander. Then the third gift of hope and assurance that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You will use all things for our good and your glory. You are chasing us just as you exhort us to chase you. You're so committed to us. And then fourthly, the gift of yourself, the incarnation, the promise of God with his people, for his people, shepherding his people, caring for his people, walking with his people, and we'll come and bring them home or we go to meet you at our earthly death. Help us to live for those things that last forever. And the old church said...